Happy Thanksgiving, coaches. Today, my guest is Josh Goffey. Josh has been the head men's coach at the University of South Carolina since 2010. He has also served as an assistant coach for the men's team at Duke for two years between 2008 and 2010, and the women's team at Arizona State from 06 to 08. He was a very successful player at Clemson and reached a career-high ATP doubles ranking of 121 and a singles ranking of 488. In this podcast, we discuss his father's influence on his coaching philosophy and gather his thoughts on recruiting, player development, and intentionally managing your culture. I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Josh Goffey. Josh Goffey, thanks so much for coming on the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. Happy to be here, man. This is great. Yeah, we're, we're going to have some fun today. Lots of different areas, player development, recruiting, culture, lots of things I want to pick your brain on. And I know our coaches will be excited to hear from you. So just going back to your, your early days, obviously you were raised in a, a tennis culture. Uh, you became a very successful player yourself at both the college and pro level. Um, did you always have an urge to coach once you finished your playing days or did you ever consider any other professions? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, I, yeah, so I was actually pretty firmly against becoming a coach. Um, and there's actually like a, a, a story. So one of those van rides back in college, um, you know, we had like 15 guys packed into a 10 passenger van, probably uh, headed an eight hour drive to play like a quadruple header the way Creasy loved it. Um, you know, but it was one of those conversations and, and most conversations were not very uh, intelligent, but this one happened to be one of those kind of where who's going to end up where in, the, in their future life and so on. And one of the questions was along the lines of like, you know, uh, you know, so who's going to become the college coach out of all of us? And and, you know, we ranked everybody in the car. And I think I finished like almost dead last because <laughs> I think I think most guys thought that I was, you know, I was I made it pretty clear, like, look, I'm here to be a player and then. I'm not going to follow in my father's footsteps. Like I, I want to have my own career, my own identity, either I become a player and then I get into the business world or whatever. And that was, that was something that I, I was pretty certain about. And, you know, just through kind of just the way things happen in life, um, you know, I got off tour and had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I had some, I was starting to think about that maybe towards the end of what uh, my, my playing days and, um, and, and but just really had no idea, you know, everything had been dedicated towards becoming a, a pro and being successful at it. And then after that, it was like, OK, so what do I want out of my life? You know, and, and I think a lot of pros come to that conclusion of they need a little bit of a decompression phase to kind of acclimate back to normal, normal human life where because it's you're such an, you're in such solitude out there and you're just in a in a bubble for so to say, so to speak. And then you come back into like daily life. And you're like, what do I do? Well, you always, you always know you have tennis as a backup. So I was, I was interested in trying to figure something else out. Um, I majored in finance, minored in accounting, uh, did pretty well there in college. Um, but, but didn't, was not passionate about that, especially coming after being out on tour and, um, having like, uh, you know, just being free and never sitting behind a desk or having to do any work. You know, the last thing I wanted to do is sit behind a desk for 18 hours a day and grind. So that was out the window. And then I was like, well, you know, what do I do? So um, it was it was soul searching for a couple months there. And then we uh, my wife and I got married in November of 05. And in 06, we moved to Arizona. Um, and it was really for her. She was a really successful athlete. She was a uh, what she was on the women's uh, U.S. national team pool for soccer. 
and um, a great athlete. And the Beijing Olympics was around the corner. And so the, the leagues, we had just moved back from Europe and the leagues were, um, weren't really up and going. So she got in contact with her old college coaches and asked her their opinion about where she should go train, you know, strength training, just the whole, the, the whole encompassing needs of trying to make the Olympics. Um, and they were like, look, we've got an opening in Arizona state, like as an assistant, you know, would you want to come over and we can, we can provide all those things and you can really help out the team and so on. And so within the next 24 hours, she said, yeah. And we said, yeah, let's go. We'll, we'll move to Arizona as newlyweds and we'll start our lives there. And, um, I just picked up a racket and went to a park court and started teaching some tennis to some, some kids and slowly developed an academy and, Eight months later, I didn't want to do that anymore because I never saw my wife because that's heavy. That's a heavy load. And um, and it just by literally chance, Paul Reber, Sheila McInerney's assistant at the time, uh, had left for the Oregon head coach mm-hmm. and uh, to become the Oregon head coach. I think she was hiring another guy. His visa got tied up and she was in a pickle like in November. And she's like, look, I need a guy to like help me feed balls. And she walked across the hall to my wife's office and she's like, Nancy, I heard uh, that, that your husband teaches tennis, you know, we need somebody to help. And we were having dinner later that night. And she's like, oh, by the way, yeah, uh, Sheila came over and said, you know, asked if you could help out. And I was like, yeah, OK, great. Um, but, you know, like and she's like, well, I told her you weren't interested because you're doing great. And I was like, go back in there, like get back in there and let's like tell her that I want to come over and then talk. So that's like, a, you know, long story of how I ended up in college coaching with really no intention to be a coach whatsoever. And wow. then forward about 15, 16 years and I'm here talking to you and loving every second of it. Yeah, so when you first started with Sheila, then what really captured your imagination about, about college tennis or returning to college tennis from the coaching side? Obviously you, you had a great career at Clemson. My intentions were to just initially just just like be, you know, be a newlywed and, and be able to hang out my hang out with my wife, like more than, you know, from like 4 p.m. on in the day, you know, where it's like we just never saw each other. But but then what ended up catching, I guess I gave me the coaching buzz was just like coaching is coaching, whether you're on girl side, guy side. I mean, the, that team was special. Those girls were great. I mean, they 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 bought in immediately. We we started we were in a really I guess, great part of the, the, the climb, I guess, so to speak of where Sheila's team was at that point, I was able just to come in and provide a little bit of court structure, maybe a little bit of discipline with inside points and stuff like that. And really kind of work and encourage the fitness side of things inside practice and, and be able to push through some barriers. And the girls started really taking on to it. And, and with that, it's like, that's, that ultimately is why I'm a coach is when kids, are starting to do things that they don't want to necessarily do or don't think that they can do or find reasons and validate why they why they don't want to do certain things but they start and then they start finding success after doing that that's life-changing for those kids you know and like and when you start seeing that you can maybe become a factor in helping these kids get through some of those hurdles uh you know that that gives me a buzz man i mean that that's that's why we do what we do i think as all coaches or we are involved as educators um, I like seeing people succeed and seeing that those girls really start to invest more and more, the more success they had individually as a team. And then, then, then actually seeing them continue to invest in, and double down again was amazing. And then seeing the heartbreak when it, when we just fell short, you know, and, and actually seeing real emotion, mm-hmm. you know, shared by all of us 
you know, that's something that I think maybe for six, seven years, I didn't get out on tour. It's just you, you know, and, right. and, and I think that really ignited a fire in me and, and, you know, and it grew and it's like every year it grows and every year it, it's different. Teams are different when there's new personalities and everything, but absolutely that's what really got my teeth sunk into it was, was those years. And, and look, being under Sheila McInerney, one of the all-time greats, I mean, she, she was amazing with, you know, she, she absolutely was there to teach me, but she gave me free reign to do a lot of things. We talked tennis like all the time, um, which I love, you know, and so going to work was not work, man. It was just a lot of fun, you know, and I was like, well, if I can do this for the rest of my life, this is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, that's the thing. I mean, uh, yeah. Working for Sheila McInerney, obviously playing under coach Creasy, and then obviously your, your father, Carlos, who, who you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, he coached a number of top pros and obviously you're in that environment around that kind of high, high performance level, um, you know, top of the game, really. So what, what are some things maybe that you learned from him that you implement in your program now? And, and are there uh, ways in you, that you see the sport maybe a little differently uh, than your father and kind of what did you take and what did you leave behind, I guess? Yeah. Um, I've been, I've been so fortunate enough to be, to grow up, you know, under my dad's tutelage really through his camps. I mean, that's where I learned everything was just kind of being around and listening to all his, his speeches and, and nightly talks with all the kids and watching him analyze stroke production. And this, I mean, it was like, you know, rarely was ever that I was ever really worked into that. It was really just me watching a lot and just kind of through osmosis and just being around it, I was able to learn. But, and then, you know, I think my dad was a big part of putting me in with, with Chuck over at Clemson and, and, you know, finding that that was a good spot. And Chuck, Chuck is, uh, he's, he's, you know, he is one of the greatest coaches of all time. One of the people that has thought about the game probably more than most people in the world. Yeah. Um, maybe even combined and and that alone you know there's a there's a lot that needs to be learned from a man that's done that much thinking and and I was fortunate enough to be be with him and, and have some great talks with him but really also same thing just be in his program and learn through action um, and granted those are a lot of their theories between my father and Chuck are, are they're they're along the same lines they're momentum based they're about the game court structure things like that but but they're different uh, they, they disagree in a few areas um, and that was, I think, helpful for me is coming in with one philosophy from my father and having to reflect it with Chucks and, and being able to learn that. And then, and then there's me as a player that's kind of in the middle. Okay, well, now I, I need to put this into action. And it was almost like a lab for me um, to kind of figure out what works, what's, what's not working. When, you know, my dad says play aggressive at 30 love. Chuck says ultimately you need to lock a guy in the court and, not, and go 85 balls can at 30 love, you know, and, and those are polar ends of the spectrum there as far as philosophy on how to manage a match or manage a game. And, and so which one worked and which one didn't. And so it was, it was beautiful in that sense, but going back to your original question, just as far as uh, growing up with my father and, and what I use, I mean, I look at the game through his eyes, you know, the way that he sees the game and, and, you know, my father's a genius in, in, in the sport is he took, he takes a lot of high level, uh, concepts and has created a methodology that, that is very simple for, for juniors and, and, uh, and, and collegiate players to really understand um, and start, start thinking about parts of the game that are not thought about uh, very much at all. Um, 
you know, and so, so ultimately, um, it's, we, I use that, I use that every single day in my program, man. It's uh, the ability to get past just the stroke production and the physicality and, and you need to move like this, you need to recover like this. I mean, yes, those are all very important things, but those are all, those are all things that help you play the game, but then you got to learn how to play the game. And that's, I think the beauty about our sport is that, um, you know, is learning how you're going to develop your own philosophy as a player of uh, how you're going to manage matches, how you want to move matches ahead. You know, are you the guy that's going to play aggressive in certain situations, more defensive? Uh, when do you know a player's going to crack? And, and certain along those things, I mean, that's the fun part. And it ultimately leads you to play much better tennis on a consistent basis if you are not solely thinking about the two circle around you. So to in short, my father's philosophy allows players to uh, really explore an individuality in the sport. And he, he holds that very dear. He, he's, you know, he says that players need to be very self-reliant. Uh, and another word for that would be ownership of their own games, right? And I think that's, that's a buzzword in our sport, but nobody really understands it. Um, and so he's identified throughout his time at the highest levels. And, and it's the way I look at the sport also is as high-level players and successful people or whatever it might be, anybody that succeeds in something, they all have – they all, if you boil it all down from what the glam looks like on the outside and you get down to the nuts and bolts of what they do, if, even through stroke production, it's all the same. Mm. The greatest players in the world are masters of the fundamentals. That's what they are. That's what they do. That's what they do the best. And when it comes down to the fundamentals of stroke production, movement, they all move very efficiently. They see the court. They know they are the fundamentals of shot selection. They're all the same. I mean, it's, it's, if you look at it and you can digest it and you have a framework to, to view the sport in that way, you're going to watch. They all know where the ball's going. So it's no mystery. It's then, and so on. So every, every player is, is a master. Every player that's been great has a master of the fundamentals. Now, how you take those fundamentals and make them your own, that's up to you. And there's some benefits in that. And the benefits in that, really ownership of your game. And we play a, a game that ultimately comes down to a few major pressure points inside matches. If levels are pretty equal and the higher levels you get, it's very equal at most of the time. And those are flexion points in matches. And the person that owns those that knows what they're doing in those moments is the person that normally comes out on top. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just the way it is. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk in today's world about, uh, I can't feel my forehand. I can't, I can't feel this. I don't feel the ball today, coach. Cool. Well, that's, that's what most, that's the, since the beginning of the game back, you know, back when it started, that's what everybody said that, you know, but but the goal is, is if, if a coach has, you know, this is the problem is this is where the individuality comes in is that, that he stresses so much and self-reliance. If a player has built his strokes around those fundamentals, if a player has built his methodology of how he goes about competing in a match, how he opens up the match and so on, if something doesn't feel good, they still have something they can go back and work with, right? So they can go and fix that stroke. Why? Because it's theirs. They know every inch of that swing. So they know that, hey, this doesn't feel right. Okay, I need to shorten things up. I need to get back to contact and so on. And I can build it back up within two to three points. They feel good again, right? That happens multiple times in a match. And a lot of times it has to do with the player across the net, the court you're playing on. Maybe it's just something to that day with your body that's maybe not firing or whatever. But regardless, that's going to happen most of the time you play. So it's your job as a, as a player to be able to fix that. So, so ultimately, you know, the foundation of what he has provided me of the, and it's again, just the fundamentals of the game. I've slowly started 
building out my own philosophy, right. As a player. And then now as a coach and, and as a player, I got to learn a lot about myself uh, through that and how I wanted to go about crafting my game and crafting a match and so on. But then on top of that, now it's like, as a coach, you see like thousands of, of matches all the time throughout your years. And then you get to work with these guys and, and see where they make missteps and so on. And, and so your philosophy definitely grows and you evolve as think as a coach, mm-hmm. um, you know, my father likes to joke around and say that he's version 1.0 and I'm version 2.0 of, of it, you know, because we are moving things kind of forward. I talk to him as a sounding board, you know, daily, weekly about mm-hmm. things that I'm thinking about in the sport and, and to get his thoughts. And, and a lot of times he just kind of nods and listens and then, you know, gives me a sentence here or there. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I got it. <laughs> so he's a major asset, but no, I, you know, I wouldn't say as far as disagreeing, there's not a whole lot. I think I've just kind of gotten a little more detailed just mm-hmm. as, as I've become a, a coach for longer. Mm. And is there any place coaches can go to uh, better understand Carlos's philosophy? Is there any books, articles? Yeah, I mean, he's done a lot. He's done a lot. He's been out of tennis for about 20 something years. Um, believe it or not, I'm encouraging him to come back. I've, I am trying to resurrect him and, um, and get him back into, you know, he, he, you can just feel the love for the game and love for people when he speaks about the game and in any time that he comes anywhere near my guys, my guys are like, God, your dad's amazing, man. Like that was unbelievable. And I'm like, dude, I've been telling you that for four years. Right. And, uh, but, but he has, he has a way with people to be able to, and his messages is, is great. So, you know, we're, we're, I'm actually working on something with him to try to get him back up and running here and in, into the 21st century. But, you know, he wrote, he wrote, well, he wrote one of the big books back in the day uh, with, with actually Johnny Mack um, called tournament tough. And it's it's dated in some of the in some of the stuff that's in there because it was written in 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if you want to go back to the fundamentals of things, you know, you read in there, and and most of that stuff is applicable today. And it's that's that's his methodology. It's pretty pretty straightforward. So it's out there. Uh, there's digital copies. There's there's out there. Happy to send you one whenever you want one. Uh, oh, it, it's good stuff, man. It's it's yeah. uh, it's really good stuff. Okay, and and Chuck Creasy, his uh, much of his philosophy is captured in Total Tennis Training. Is that the name of his book? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and that's definitely another another book coaches should pick up, and I think has been recommended on the podcast before, maybe. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he's, I mean, he he goes into details there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's it's a fantastic book. I read it a long time ago, um, but uh, got a huge amount out of it for sure yeah. so yeah, yeah it's, right, it's right up there on the shelf right next to tournament tough so it's, yeah yeah <laughs> okay um you might even have signed copies okay yeah. so in in your your bio uh on the the sc uh university of south carolina website your quote is saying a, a mistake a lot of coaches and, and even ceos make is is kind of putting the product first uh can you expand a little bit more on uh, kind of on, on what you mean about this yeah, um, you know, look, I think that was that was that was a quote that I put out there about 12 years ago, I think when I first got the job and people were, you know, the, I was getting interviewed about, you know, how are you going to recruit? How are you how are you going to build your culture, your program? And and I think that was a it's a little out of context, but at the same time, I'll, you know, I'll expand on what I was trying to get at. Um, you know, look, it's it, you, you got to take care of your people on your team. Um, that's number one. It's like, if you, if you put winning ahead of everything, well, that's, that's the quickest way to dismantle a squad. You got to bring in the right people. And that, that lends to recruiting. And, and that goes into is like, 
you've got to be a good recruiter, not in the sense of just bringing in a high level, but you got to bring in the right people, you know, and, and ultimately that's it is that if you can treat your team as almost like a living organism, as, as something that you, that you nurture, you care for, then, and if you look at every facet of it as something that, that it has to be fed daily and you've got to be able to, to, to give it what it needs and you got to give it love and you got to give it care, then ultimately how can it not be successful? But if you are sitting there only asking for it to produce results, and because you you have the appropriate components that are involved or the pro- appropriate hardware, how is that, you know, that that's never going to work, you know, and that's when toxicity starts leaking into your program. And and then that's when you can see, I mean, you can read it on a coach's face miles away. Um, and we've, we've all been there, you know, when things are breaking down and you have no idea why. Well, it's nothing you did in the last week or two. I'll tell you that much. You know, it's it's a, it's been a slow leak. And now, unfortunately, things are pretty contaminated and it's hard to get rid of that. Mm. So, so yeah. yeah, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, that that was a little out of context, but that's that's kind of the gist of what I was what I was getting at and the way that uh, I approach it. You know, my, my stepfather actually wrote a book um, and it's uh, he wrote a book called The Companies That Mimic Life. And I, I learned a lot through that just reading another book there. It's actually he, uh, MIT, and I think Harvard have put it in their circulation as far as part of their curriculum. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a book about finance and the companies that, that are the most successful companies in the world and the commonalities, going back to the fundamentals of success, right? Well, that's what he did in the business world is that, look, the fundamentals of these companies is that they, they're taking care of their people. They're taking care of their communities. They're taking care of their people. They're taking care of anything that their company touches. They're making sure that they nurture that and they put the money and time and effort into those things. Well, inevitably, once you create a culture and you can create an environment where people want to be there and they love working and they're bought in and their hearts invested, I mean, it's, you're, you're going to do your, all everything you want from that as far as a product-based uh, results, they're going to happen. It's inevitable. So um, what's yeah. your father-in-law's name, Josh? Just what's the, the name of the book and his name? Uh, Joseph Bragdon, he's written quite a few books. Uh, Profit for Life is one of them. Uh, Companies that mimic life okay. um, is, is one. And he's just finished writing another book as well. That's very, very much along the same lines. It's, okay. it's very high level finance business world stuff. And, you know, I understood 10% of it. So, but <laughs> just of what I got was, was that, and, you know, look, I mean, that's something that I think is very important is, is to reach out and, and just trying to learn. And how does that relate to your, your world? I mean, success is success. And I think we're all in the understanding that any book you read is they're all saying the same things. Right. So again, you know, like my father always said is boil it down to the fundamentals, you know, boil it down, figure out what the commonalities are that everybody's saying, who's mm-hmm. successful, who's not, why aren't they successful and, and apply it to what you do. Right. And hopefully you know, hopefully you can, if not, if at least if you mess it up, you know why you messed it up and you can change it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just uh, staying with the recruiting for a little bit. Can you take us through your process a little bit? I think coaches are always interested in how other coaches think about this and yeah. not leave it to, to chance or, or be haphazard about it. So just try and understand maybe how year, how many years out you start monitoring players, how often you try and watch a player before making an offer how do you figure out like you talked about character how, how are you figuring out because every coach says like i want high character people and yeah. want to build a great culture and and you know results only matter to a certain amount you know to a certain degree but you know how how are coaches really identifying who those kids are that are going to be fun to work with add a great deal to the team 
you know, buy into the team culture and, um, and get better. Yeah. I mean, it's, that is, that is tough. You know, I think, I think it's something that we try to get better at every single year when we talk a lot about it and we spend a lot of time talking about recruiting, um, you know, kids, we talk a lot about the kids that are not on our team. We talk about the kids on our team a lot, you know, and so on. And we learn by, you know, we learn every year things that we didn't see that are popping up within our team, you know, things that, that we didn't see during the recruiting process. And now that we are seeing with kids that are two, three years inside of our team, things, you know, were there red flags that were, that we could, could have seen during the recruiting process. We make those notes and we, you know, we quickly, we, you know, we have a recruit, like literally we have a recruit, recruiting playbook. Mm-hmm. Like to be totally honest. I mean, I, um, Kyle Bailey and, and I put that together, um, you know, as far as like, look, this is who we recruit. This is what we look for. This is how we do things. So um, he was great enough to put that together for me. And, um, and so any, any new assistant that comes in the door, there's literally a playbook from the last assistant. And I have every guy that comes to the door, keep adding to it, adjusting it and amending it. And I, I amend it as well, as far as things that we learn, just so there's a philosophy in place that it's hard to, to, to teach how to recruit to be very honest. So to get as many people's words and thoughts in there is about how you go about things. It's very important. Now, look, I mean, re, you know, we are in South Carolina and, and you have to recruit. There's, there's limitations to what you can and can't recruit, especially with where your program's at and certain things, you know, I mean, um, it's different with Americans. It's different with internationals, the timelines, you know, so with internationals, we're, we're you know, we recruit until 30 days prior to school starts, you know, of that semester with, with Americans, you better be on it two and a half years prior. So it, in which I think is disastrous in a way for the kid and for, for tennis coaches, because those are the years that, that start separating a kid and you can really start seeing and what you can start seeing and, and visualizing what that kid's going to become yet. So now the rule is, is that we can start recruiting kids before they're even in their junior year. Half of them haven't even matured as an athlete yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, how in the heck are you supposed to see what that kid's supposed to be physically, you know, much less mentally mature enough? You know, what you're seeing is like, I don't know if this kid's going to have it together by the time he comes. I mean, by the time he's a sophomore, that's four years from now. Right. That's crazy. You know, like if I can't see into the future like that right now. So, you know, maybe maybe by doing it more in the future, we will. But look, as far as recruiting, I would say my my advice, one thing that, that I like what we are doing right now is that once we identify a kid that we're interested in, meaning the kid is at a level that is consummate to our team, you know, that he's there to be, uh, you know, he's with our, he's at the level of our team. Uh, he has been recommended to us or he caught our eye at a tournament um, or, you know, once we have decided and narrowed our list down, we really have done a pretty good job. I would say of attacking everything around that kid coaches, other parents in that region that we that we have a good relationship with of maybe past players what do you know we start looking into reputations quite a bit of these kids um, some of them reputations unfortunately sometimes are are skewed um, but it's something that gives you a general idea you know generally when there's a reputation about somebody there's some truth to it so what we do is we we dig a little deeper and we do a lot of work we talk to the kid a lot but we talk to a lot of people around the kid like a lot a lot and that's that to me you know is is the most important part and we never bring a kid in or at least we try to never bring a kid in um if we can help it without knowing who he is 
around and what his reputation is and, and some living examples from other coaches in the region. How does he compete against his kids and so on? And obviously you have to take some things with grains of salt here and there, but, but that is very important. So talking about how do you assess character? I mean, if you're trying to assess character by watching one match, there's no chance you can. Mm-hmm. The kid's got half, you know, two brain cells in his head. He's going to be a good boy that day when he's competing and he knows you're watching. Right. So, and he's going to treat his parents with respect. It's watching him multiple times and from maybe a few distances or a few courts away. Uh, I do that quite a bit. Um, stand on the other side, you know, two or three courts away watching um, just to key, you know, and, and for a few reasons, not to put pressure on the kid that we're watching or, and, but I also want, want to see how he's acting when we're not on top of him, you know, and, and we watch how he is mom or dad carrying the bag. How does he deal with mom and dad for loss? And so on, like all those things can start telling you the story about how, how he has been parented, how he's been uh, dealt with and how he deals with adversity and so on. And, and you can, you can slowly start figuring things out as a, as a recruiter, whether you want to deal with that or not. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And Josh, I'm also interested in not a question I've asked on the podcast before, but really how do you prepare? Let's, we'll take Kalamazoo. It's a big turn. A lot of coaches are there, obviously, a lot of matches going on, but how would you prepare for an event like that? Uh, you know, what are the work you're doing leading up to maximize your time out there? And then what are you doing while you're there to maximize your time? Obviously, you know, some coaches are, are, are on a shoestring budget and, and maybe they can get there for a couple of days. Like, again, what advice would you have? So coaches going out and to make the absolute most of their time on, on a trip like that or a trip elsewhere? Yeah. Uh, be prepared, you know, obviously know who you're recruiting. If, if you're going to Calum, if you're going to a tournament and you don't have at least three to four people that you've been in contact with all summer, you know, then, then you're just going there and you just, if you're going there to assess your, your, your miles behind the situation. Um, I learned that young, you know, when I was a young recruiter and, and as an assistant, I would just go and be like, wow, that guy's really good. And be like, he's already signed. Well, that guy's really good. Uh, he's been talking to TCU for like months. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, and, and, you know, it, it didn't even occur to me to already walk in there and have a relationship developed with these kids. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's one-on-one as being a successful recruiter is, is develop a relationship prior to the tournament. So they feel comfortable around you, um, you know, uh, at, at a big event, you know, they're all, all the kids are super intimidated when they're in an event, when they're in a, in a, you know, by all the college coaches watching, I mean, they're all stressed to the gourd, you know, right. when they're there and, and they're always looking around, their eyes are fleeting, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, look, if you, if you had a couple of conversations and you can get past the, the, the coming out, you know, the niceties when you're talking to a kid and you start getting into some fun conversations about whatever, even if it's just about tennis, you know, I mean, you're the familiar face inside of, inside, you know, at Kalamazoo when, when, literally there's people that are hunting there for, you know, the next recruit, well, that's intimidating. So who are they going to, who are they going to want to want to hang out with and who are they going to want to talk to? Well, the guy that they know. So to be honest, I mean, that's, that's one-on-one. And actually there was a coach up in Virginia that I was recruiting my very first summer there at Duke. And and I was reconnecting with a couple of coaches and players that I I played with. And I was like, Hey man, you know, I'm coming to clay courts. And, uh, you know, and he's like, good. He's like, uh, I got to let you know, Josh. He's like, all the players you're asking about already have like meetings set up the day before. And I'm like, I haven't even talked to these guys. Mm-hmm. And these guys, are, these guys have, are so far along that they have like meetings with mom and dad and, 
and, you know, maybe verbal offers are going on the table right there. And I'm like, wow, I'm starting so far behind. Mm-hmm. That was a major indicator of like, you got to get your stuff together as far as getting ahead of the game. And when you walk into a tournament to make your time work for you, to make your money work for you as a, as a budget, you, you got to go in there prepared. You got to know what you're recruiting, how you're recruiting. And you might see a few players there that catch your eye, you know, and that's okay. Add them to the list, you know, but, but realize that, you know, there's a lot of work to be done very quickly after that tournament because you're probably starting the race a little late there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that as well, Josh. Like what does catch your eye, whether it's somebody you, you've spoken to or not, maybe you're watching a younger age group, but like what are, you talked about fundamentals earlier, but what, what are some of the things you're walking around Kalamazoo, you stop at a court and you're like, wow, this, this kid's really good. Like what, what makes them really good in, in your eye? So if I'm walking through Kalamazoo and I'm like, whoa, that that's different. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's going to catch my eye. And so, you know, there's a, like one is, is how clean a ball a guy can hit. How clean can the guy hit a ball at, at that, at, at a 16 year old, there are, the ball comes off a racket differently uh, in, when it's clean and, and there's, and there's pure compression. Right. And, and that is a skill that's developed at a pretty young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whether that ball is going in the court or not at, at 16 is not necessarily of my major concern. Um, it's, it's how clean can that ball be hit, you know, and, and because that has an upside. Now, what comes with that is why isn't he, why isn't this guy that is hitting this clean, not winning as much as you should be with hitting a ball like that? And that would be the second question I would have to start. You know, that's where I would go immediately in my head of, okay, that's interesting. I need to look at this guy a little bit more. And a lot of times within five minutes, I go, oh, that's why, right? But at the same time, that's one. Two would be athleticism. Okay, so athleticism catches my eye a lot because athletes have the ability to grow. Um, And so when I look at athleticism, I'm not looking at a kid that can jump out of the stadium. That's not the athleticism that I look at or a guy that looks like a a Greek god. I mean, half the time, those guys are not good athletes. But, But I look at an athlete as the way he moves on the court, uh, the way that he's able to put his body uh, into awkward positions and still maintain control of his hands in those moments. You know, how does he deal with body serves and off the return? You know, because he is, is he able to stay small, keep his hand on the, you know, his eye on the ball and so on. That's an athlete, right? And, and can he decelerate? Can he move? Those are things I'm like, Hey, there's, there's a lot there. And that is something that's hard to replicate at a later age. And so that's something that's hard to develop. You can work on those things, but it's really hard to create that. That's, that's, those are all things that are developed at a very young age when multi-sports and, um, you know, playing multiple sports and so on. Um, so that is, that's a, that's a huge indicator. And so I see that I'm like, okay, now, you know, is this guy's technique decent enough that he can maybe grow with the sport? That would be the second place I would go there off of that, that sort of thing. And then the other one is, man, you know, a serve. Mm kid has a serve and it's got a clean motion and he's dropping heat then that I'm very interested mm-hmm. uh, because those guys get to play a different game they don't they don't have to hit it 50 balls in a rally they don't have to be physically fit you know they can play a different an actual different game they can play the big man's game and and you can craft that pretty quickly as long as that thing's there so so yeah those things are the ones that catch my eye when I'm when I'm at a tournament and and what about between the points again is that just very individual do you do you care about how they're responding in between the points what they're saying to themselves or oh yeah along those lines yeah yeah Yeah. what 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 is is that 
you know, do you prefer the higher tempo or somebody who's calm or, or what, what, what's important to you there? That's all, that's all person. That's all individually based. Yeah. Some guys, some guys have to be, have to be playing high strong. Some guys have to be calm. Um, you know, and, and I don't, when somebody acts, you know, quote unquote, like a brat on the court, you know, um, I don't just be like, Oh, I'm not recruiting that guy. You know, that's, you know, look, that's fire, man. You know, that's, that's passion. And I'd much rather have a guy that has passion and teach him how to control that versus a guy that is super flat on the court and feels like he is, you know, that he's more worried about what people are thinking about him and how he's acting on the court. I don't want that. You know, those guys are more consumed with their, their appearance versus the guy that's like, look, I'm going to burn this entire place down. You know, if I'm not winning, something's going to happen here. You know, like, like, Look, that, that comes with a major price. Now, how much of that can you take on your team? You know, in what years? That's also very important to kind of assess. But, but look, I'm naturally drawn. I think passion and and that uh, intensity is what drives the great players to be great. And it's just an understanding of how to control that. It's a double-edged sword. You know, you need it. You need it to shift gears. You need it to to step up in big moments. You know, it's um, but if you can learn how to control it, you know, when your breaking point is and when you start hitting that red line in your engine and you're about to blow, you know, you got to be able to get ahead of that. And that's that's something you can teach people. Um, But as long as it's not as long as you don't, you just can't dampen that fire out. So, you know, I personally inside points, I'm looking for all of it. You know, I mean, you can tell when a kid is more calm and calculated. That's look, there's, you know, Bjorn Borg, man. I mean, there's players out there that that are extremely high level that operate there. So you can't just box somebody in. Mm-hmm. You just have to know that that's okay. So that gives me a little insight into what this kid's personality is. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just another facet of tying it into the whole, the whole, the whole view of what you're recruiting. Yeah. Very good. Thanks for that. And then, okay. So you've recruited a player now uh, they've arrived on campus. Can, can you provide some examples of how, you start building their character, you know, uh, getting them to, I guess, buy into the culture. I mean, when does that process start for you? I'm assuming it starts well before they've arrived on, on campus, but can you maybe take us through that process of developing a player's character and also getting them to, to buy into the team culture? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a nonstop process. It's a nonstop journey from the moment they walk in all the way through, you know, the moment you think a player is, has it, he doesn't, you know, it's, it's humbling. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's humbling for them too, you know, in, in that moment. But yeah, the moment the player walks in is you've, you've got team, you've got your coaches, you have, you know, we have a rule here. Anybody that, that touches our program speaks the same language. That's, that's mandatory here. It is, we are, you know, we bring our trainers, we bring our, uh, our physios, we bring our director of ops, you know, anybody that's a part of our staff, anybody that comes in our registering and they, they're in the meetings mm-hmm. and they're hearing what the players are hearing because no one gets to say anything else that's different than the, the words that are being spoken to these guys, you know, so think about your trainer, your trainer spends a lot of time with these guys when they're on the table you know, working on them, whatever, if that trainer's sitting there saying something different that might be contradictory to what you're saying, well, now there's, now the message is being polluted versus if he's speaking the same language, maybe in his words, but the same fundamentals of what needs to be said in that moment, especially for that individual player, 
that's just a nut, that's just almost exponentially growing that message that kid needs to hear. So it's information. It's that kid's getting fed the right stuff for him to be able to, to get through whatever they're getting through or they need to get through in that moment. It's, it's another, it's an asset, or it can be an absolute uh, detractor from what you're trying to do. And, and so having everybody on board, meaning the environment the kid is in has to be pure, including the language that's being spoken by your guys outside of team practice. It needs to be more of, uh, you know, it needs to be growth minded where, where they're excited to do things. They're excited to get to work because everybody gets tired and everybody wants to play the victim and every, it's just human nature. And so that's where the, the, I guess the collective unit is stronger than the individual there, where, where if, if we have enough guys that understand the language that we speak and we define it, you know, that look, this is what we want. This is the opposite of what we want. And we go through living examples all the time, weekly about certain things. Uh, when I see something, you know, I get a temperature of the team and it's the guys aren't maybe eager to be at practice or there's some, a lot of, a lot of negative stuff going on between points or whatever. I'll just bring the guys in and be like, you know, what's going on outside of here and what's the language, you know, and, and, and encouraging your boys to be able to speak up to you and speak to you and challenge you and, and say, you know, coach, we're just tired. We're tired. And then that's the language and nobody's really excited to be here and so on. I think that that ability to communicate with you as a coach and, and also to be able to listen to them, but also to be able to foster the language that they need to hear consistently amongst everybody around you, creating the environment, I mean, how can they not grow as a person when, when that's, that's what they're being fed, you know, and, and, and you just got to make sure it's the right stuff, you know, and um, that, I think that's something that we strive to do here. It's, it's tough. It's, and we, we don't do a great job of it at certain parts, you know, we all get run down and beat down as coaches and players and so on, but we strive to do that. And I think over the long run, you know, we're in the positives when it comes to that, that growth. So Starts day one, teaching them how to speak, how to do certain things along those lines. Like, for instance, I'll give you a very simple uh, example because it's pretty vague about what I'm talking about, I guess. Um, just simple stuff about teaching them how to, how to speak about the game. Okay, so a kid walks off the court. How'd you play today? He's a new kid. He just played his first tournament. How'd you go? You know, how'd you feel about that match? And he goes, uh, I played well today. Okay, well, well, tell me about that. You know, and he's like, well, I was hitting my forehand really well and I was serving well. Great. So, okay. So what we do, we don't talk like that. We don't talk about hitting balls because what you just said was, you know, your strokes worked for you today. Right. And that's not what we do here. That's, we don't talk tennis like that. So you didn't play well today. You hit the ball well today. So you can come off the court next time and you can say, Hey man, you know, like, yeah, I hit the ball well today. And I played, I, you know, I didn't really have to play, play well, to be honest, because, you know, my ball strike was just good enough. That's plenty fine to be able to talk like that, you know, but you know, the day that you come off, you know, and he comes off and he says, I didn't play well today. Why? Well, I couldn't find my forehand. Okay. Well, well, you're right. You played terrible today because you actually didn't play the game. And what I'm talking about is I want you to tell me, look, uh, you know, at, uh, I had break points at three, two, 30, 40. And, um, and I played too passive there. You know, and, and I mismanaged that moment and he ended up, you know, too passive. He came forward, got, he got confidence for that moment. He popped an ace at deuce and now it's three all. I got broken at love the next game because the guy's fired up. I'm, I'm ticked off that I didn't get the break. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, you're right. That is you playing poorly. You, you played the game poorly that day. You didn't manage that moment the right way. 
And so therefore that's the way that we would be talking about playing the game. So that's just a, like a small example of, of kind of creating, creating a language around just, you know, so they, so then once the language starts being spoken then their mind starts following, right. Mm -hmm. and thinking about the game a little bit differently and so on. So, and then, you know, as far as culture, I get to versus I have to things along those lines, the very basics that we all kind of have read and heard, those are real. Those, those work. And, and we talk a little bit about that. It's like, look, we get to go play Georgia, you know, and it's like, we get to go play in a place, you know, that this happened and so on, or, or we get to go play this team and do X, right? Well, those are all, I get to go practice and work on this because this is going to allow me to do that. And it's just reframing mindsets and making sure that, that we are constantly listening to their, their words and vice versa. That's us speaking like that as well. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for providing those examples, Josh. That's really helpful. Um, yeah, the other area going again back to kind of the fundamentals. And so you have a new player on campus, you know their game extremely well, obviously, because you've recruited and watched them play a bunch. But, you know, are there are there any technical changes that you find yourself making as a college coach quite consistently through the years? And, you know, if so, what are they? And how would you advise coaches to maybe have more confidence to make those changes themselves in the future? We, uh, it's, it's a, that's a tough one, man. I, you know, at our last thing I did with that masterclass, I mean, it's technical changes are super tough in college. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we start with fall tournaments and then we get into spring matches. I mean, it's, it's pressure all around and changing stuff inside pressure filled moments is really the greatest way to hinder any sort of change. Because, you know, we are always going to adapt back to or resort back to, to maybe what feels comfortable. And that's what we've done for a long time. And so all the work that's being done technically might just get thrown out the window with one competition. So, right. you know, it's tough. I mean, I, I think that if you can keep a kid for, sorry about that. If we can keep a kid for summer school, it's an optimal time uh, during a redshirt year, even better. Mm -hmm. um, those are, those are things, but look, you're not getting into, look, if you, if you have a kid with a, a, a major technical flaw, maybe like something that, that uh, maybe a kink in a stroke or whatever that, you know, that's very tough. That's muscle memory that's in there for a long time. And uh, that definitely needs to be done through a summer or, or whatever. But the things that, you know, that I've seen personally, that, that for things that I'm willing to recruit uh, players with certain flaws, look, it's uh, the biggest one I see is that the, the time that it takes for a forehand to develop, um, meaning that the swing is very large, is very common. And as they start progressing up the ladder in college tennis, the ball speed gets bigger, stronger. Uh, the rotation on the ball is much, much heavier. Wow. And so, therefore, it gets exposed very quickly, um, how big that swing is. And um, that would be, you know, it's not necessarily a huge technical change, but, you know, getting that to be a little more compact is, is something that, that we pretty much had to do with, with pretty much most of our guys to play the aggressive nature that we want them to play. Now, if you want to sit six feet back, that's fine. Um, but, you know, we're trying to get our guys to, to be able to play all facets of the court and, and to play at the highest levels. Um, that ball is going to be coming in pretty quick and it's going to be coming in pretty consistent. So, the longer your, your, your stroke takes to develop on the back end is also the longer it takes for it to get organized again. Mm -hmm. And when that ball speed is picking up, it's picking up an inch faster every time and you get further and further behind the point. 
and that caused initially causes bad or that will eventually cause bad decisions um, ultimately um, when you feel like you can't hang in that tempo anymore so so the simple understanding is just to for me personally the way that i would go about attacking that is is through our through my the way that i look at the game is like you know i'm 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 going to see that as a coach i'm not going to say anything to the kid i'm going to see i'm going to try to put him in situations play guys practice with guys um, put him in situations where I, it will be exposed uh, and for him to come to that conclusion. And if he can't, then I'll show him the video and then see if that gets him to come to the conclusion. And if that doesn't get him to the conclusion, then I might just drop the bomb on him and say, Hey man, you're, you, we got to shorten that thing up for you to be able to do this. And, uh, and then from there, you know, it's, it's him kind of sort of exploring that. And then we can kind of tip him in here and there, how to do that. Like I said, I'm always starting from the ground up with legs, feet, um, you know, getting in position, making sure contact point is clean, and then and then kind of working around that. Look, there's guys that have you know Delpo has a huge backswing on his forehand, and it's the largest forehand ever to play the game, right? And and the thing is, is that the moment that ball is released off that guy's racket across the net, it's already de being developed. Mm -hmm. So there are many ways to get it done. Um, very few people in the world have that ability, that hand eye, or that ability to to see the ball off guys rackets the way that those guys did. Um, so, so yeah, one way or another, we leave that creativity up to the player and then we advise them from there and then we get to work. So very good. Oh, well, let's move on to rapid fire questions. We've right. A long time here, Josh. So um, we'll, we'll speed it up here. Uh, what yeah. is the best piece of advice you have received from anyone in your life? Doesn't have to necessarily be tennis related. All right. Well, I'm going to have to give you like three small snippets here, man. It's just like, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be around a lot of people that had a lot of good knowledge. So um, always keep things in perspective in difficult times. That comes from my dad. You know, it, it's he literally will just I'll, I'll be complaining to him and he'll be like, keep perspective, son. And I'll be like, God, OK, you're right. Right. And then uh, my mom, um, she's uh, she's she's always taught me to, to think and feel about what others are feeling. So hers was always, you know, have empathy towards everyone else, you know, try to feel what they are, the position that they're in. You don't know what's going on in their life. So, so no judgment, you know, and, and get in their shoes and try to see the world from their views. And then that'll give you a better idea about how to deal with them. Um, and then the other one is learn from it and move on. That's Chuck Creasy. Mm -hmm. You know, look, man, you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. Learn from it. And then you got to put it in the past and then you got to move on, take it forward. So those are the three things that I, I hold dear in my life right. and try to live by. So, so you've, you've already mentioned a few books, but is there a book, podcast, article, passage, poem that's influenced your journey in life to date? I listen to a lot of stuff, man, on podcasts. I enjoy it. Um, but, you know, uh, listen to a lot of other coaches, you know, and again, just relate it to yourself. But um, one book, you know, it was It's Grit by Angela Duckworth. You know, I think a lot of people have read it. It was really popular a few years ago. That book, um, we hadn't made the tournament in two years, in 2015 and 16, and program was limping a little bit there, and, and we had some unfortunate stuff, but at the same time, that was one of those times where I was telling you, it's like some stuff was in the program that had been seeping in for a while, and, and largely in, due to, due to my, some, some blind spots that I had and so on, and, and I read that book on a trip and just was glued to it. Um, and just I've got notes in it and highlight, you know, the whole deal. And and but it, it's a beautiful book in the way that it's it's also very simple and it organizes a lot of things that we already know. Um, 
but it gives a good insight into development mm. and, and how people, you know, her thing is passion and perseverance over time. And we all, we all want to get in and get out of things and we want things to work tomorrow. So um, it's a great book. Check it out. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's a beauty. Um, what is your favorite part of being a college tennis coach? Uh, I touched on it earlier when I was talking about the uh, when I got into college coaching with Sheila and it's the, the relationships that are developed and also just seeing seeing kids dig deep and finding success from it. You know, there's to me, it's just it's the best. OK, if you could sit down with uh, Josh, who was starting his first day at, at Arizona State many years ago, what would you tell him and why? Oh, God. Um, that was a long time ago, but yeah, buy Bitcoin and Tesla when they get the market. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, look, man, try, you know, like this, you know, back then it's, I feel like I, you know, I had a good outlook on it. I came in eyes wide open, but the same as like, you know, try your best, learn from every single person around you and everything that happens, learn, just, just learn and try to get better, you know, and you know, something that Chuck tells me weekly is, you know, stay the course, man, stay the course, you know, and that, that is ultimately is don't panic, stay the course. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is one new idea or change you've made in your program this season and why? Uh, less is more this year. Um, I think with the pandemic coming back or coming back from that and guys going back to class and this and that, I was, I was running my, the the whole program the way it was last year. And we basically in the SEC were, I was able to run like an academy. Um, guys were living basically down the courts. It was, it was great. They were, they were doing their class. They were walking into the lounge, logging on to their, their class, uh, you know, doing their class. And then, and then they'd be like, they'd come out and hit serves because there was nothing else to do, you know? So I was like, this is amazing. This is, this is the way it's supposed to be. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I didn't, you know, it was an oversight by me. I learned, I learned that, uh, that not every year is the same um, by, for a lot of reasons. And the, the one externality that came back was the commute to and from class, the stress of actually being in class, uh, having to go to tutors, like in person, having it, that commute actually takes a lot of, a lot of stress on a kid. And, and I, I wasn't looking at that. It took me all the way to about October when our guys weren't, really getting the results that I thought that we deserved because the, the work that was put in, in the, in the, in the level of the level of tennis I was seeing at our, when practice, I was, you know, saying, wow, these guys are going to go out there and continue to, to get some, some W's here. And, and we had some mixed results that, and the guys' brains were like frazzled and, and kind of all over the place. And I think it was a lot for them. And so we met as a squad and, and um, I, I apologize dearly to them of, I didn't see this as a coach. And, and I, I just, I felt terrible for multiple days. And I said, look, you know, but we can, we can actually turn this into a major positive here. And so, um, so from there we reduced practice and, and kept the fitness going and, and I've did, did a little more individualized work, less court time for the group, a little more, a little more smart work than, than grunt work and mm -hmm. things have gotten better. And uh, so, yeah, that's something I learned this year. Interesting. And then uh, last question, what is one drill you do regularly with your team that you believe has the biggest impact on their development? Yeah, that's, that's tough. Cause I, I'm not a huge believer in that a drill makes players. I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, in that, you know, that player, that player can make any drill work for them. 
you know, in any in anything on any court. So if I were to give you one, no, this is a drill that Chuck Creasy does. Uh, and it was not when I was in college. I learned it uh, after afterwards when he was coaching up at College Park. Uh, it's the tempo drill. And um, he puts both players heels inside the baseline. He draws new baselines about three feet inside the lines and makes them play directional points just because you have to know where the ball is going. But the, but the rally is going very, very quickly. And you got to start at, you know, we do everything in scales from zero to 10. And so like in the way I just do things. And so yeah, we start out at like fives and, you know, most players are hitting full speed around eight and nines of what their rallies are. So they start out at five slowly and then they kind of get used to it. And it takes a while to get good at it. And it's, it's very frustrating initially as a coach because there's a lot of balls missed. But after a while, when your players start getting after it and they start learning that drill and understand that they're only allowed to pull the ball across their body um, to make the drill work, you'll see how fast and how short and compact that those their bodies get in position and their swings start getting naturally compact. They start accelerating through the ball, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, and it is physically also taxing and you can run fitness through it and so on. So that is a staple of what we do on a daily basis here. Brilliant. Well, Josh, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your experiences and some of your life story with the with the coaches today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. Hopefully I wasn't too long-winded. I, I once I get going, it's tough to stop me. No, so. we 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 did it. Well done. All right. Thanks, man. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to Josh for giving all his time recently to help with our coach master class. You can find his video on player development in chapter nine of the coach masterclass in our coaches resources and also some webinars that he did with coach Kevin Epley, the women's coach at South Carolina. I think you guys will enjoy that if you've not seen it already. Remember, you can find all our coach education materials in our new coaches resources section, and we will be adding some additional content after the convention next week. We look forward to seeing many of you out there soon.